calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This episode of Rebel Radio is brought to you by Wix.com, helping you get your website off the ground fast, free, and easy. They have hundreds of great looking templates. You can do it all by yourself. You can add images, videos, text, social media. So simple. You don't need to be a programmer or a designer or any of that stuff. You just drag and drop and you're done and everything's good. You can go back to your life. I encourage you to check it out at Wix.com. Wix.com. W-I-X.com. What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up? What up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh -huh. Rebel Radio is going down. What did you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Rebel Radio. I'm your host, Josh Levine, introducing my new co-host, Mr. Eddie Donaldson, who's joining me on a series we're calling Artwork Rebels, exploring conversations with some of the most important visual artists out today. And this is episode one in partnership with Gorilla One. And our guest today, I'm very excited to have as the man Jim Evans, who's been maybe more responsible than anybody for the visual communication around music for the past few decades. He started out with bands like the Allman Brothers in Chicago, on to Nirvana, the Beastie Boys, Wu-Tang. This man's created hundreds, that's no exaggeration, hundreds of album covers, posters, websites, anything you can think of around music, he's done it. And he's gonna give us some great insights into how you build a career that's that rich and lasts that long and touches that many people and some, some words of wisdom about how to stay out of the creative ruts that we all fall into. So I'm very excited to share that with you. Right after this, our EDM.com track of the week. Miraculous, to heaven and back on the Pegasus, Exodus, movement of the people, not promised tomorrow, leaders know when to follow, sitting but with an arrow. Empress and the Pharaoh, walking on the straight and narrow, in the desert of the hollows, I'm been ready for the battle, side by side like double battle. Fire upon the shade, light upon the shadow and tell him to get gone. I'm like Garvey Ghazali Gandhi, you scared of Illuminati, I'm drumming with Boba Shanti, saluting Holly Selassie. True king. Lion leadership, my army's right behind me, families they're protected, respected by those who spy on me. In the jungles of Jamaica, sipping coconut water, yoga posing in the 
son with my husband, son and daughters, tanning down Okay, that was the reminders, our EDM.com track of the week, if you didn't know. And now let's hear from Taz. But I do wanna, I do wanna set us up, because this is kind of a special episode. This is our first, um, I think we're gonna call it the Art Rebel series, uh, hosted in collaboration with Gorilla One. That's right. And my man Eddie, Eddie here. Uh, so we go back at least 20 years. Longer than that. Longer than that, because I was in college. And I remember coming to, to the hip-hop shop. Yeah, it's a long time. What was the shop called? Odd Spot 23. So Ron Hill brought me over there. Yeah, I was man. trying to think about how we met. Were you doing retail? No, I, was doing, I was doing nothing. I was you just like shopping. hustling, you know. And, uh, no, Ron was doing retail, and I just came Following. right yeah, along. Yeah, I used to know, ride with Geo. Learn the game the and stuff. And so, but dude, you're like, like you should be in the dictionary under Hustler. Because, you know. <laughs> right next to you. <laughs> but, you know, you, you always have just more shit happening, like real projects, you know, more more game, more hustle than anybody I know. I appreciate and, that coming uh, from you. That means a lot. No, it's, it's absolutely true. So I'm excited to do this together. And then maybe you can talk a little bit about Gorilla One. Well, what, I mean, right now, kind of Gorilla One's on hold, but as you know, it was the first graffiti website in Los Angeles and probably the third in the world, and it's now gone on to be great things. You know, the seventh letter kind of spawned from Gorilla One, so G1 was the original seventh letter, and then it went to Glasshouse, and then it went to I forgot, and now it's seventh letter. So mm -hmm. kind of done with that, kind of moving on, still keeping the name alive and using it for events, but not not much for it anymore. I'm 47, so... It's kind of hard to keep the dream alive. Yeah, I hear it. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's obviously taking you to a lot of interesting places. It really has. And connections. And, it, you know, in, in this show, you know, we definitely want art to be part of it. And, and when I started thinking about art and, and talking to artists, um, you know, you were the first person. Yeah, Gorilla One always pops up. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you we, know, you, you gave birth to some of these niggas. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Check that one. Although not to Taz. No, no, not at all. So. Not at all. Definitely grateful nice. to be working with Jim. G1, Taz, and so maybe, you know, you guys can talk about the collaboration, the stuff you're doing together. But, uh, sir, I'm, I'm excited to have you here. Oh, thanks. Uh, thanks. Just, you know, seeing your, your body of work, and you've worked with many, many of my favorite artists. Um, and so I think, you know, I would describe you probably incorrectly, so you can correct me on it. But, um, you know, as, as creative director, art director, designer, Illustrator, I think, musician, surfer, yeah, photographer, just all around Soccer. badass. Okay, yeah, I shoot pictures too. I mean, yeah. I wanted to be a photographer at first, but uh, did you? Yeah, I ended up uh, going into art. I was just a stronger artist, yeah, than I was a photographer. Yeah. So and but you started out as a musician, right? I did, yeah, yeah. And so how did that? Tell me about like I always like to go just back to the the very beginning, right? So tell me about your uh, what music you grew up with, and and what was the role that music played in your life? I came up, uh, I mean, I, I probably was most influenced in the beginning by by Dwayne Eddy and uh, that kind of a sound, uh, Link Ray. Who's See, what Dwayne we do Eddie? is we just pretend like we know, we and know. then we look yeah, it up yeah, on yeah. Google <laughs> after. Yeah, all right. That's <laughs> the new shit. Google it now. But I mean, it was, uh, it was a reverb-drenched sound, yeah. right? And, and it, so it's like surf rock kind of stuff? Well, it was before, actually, Dwayne before Eddy and, and Link Ray were before surf rock, but okay. they, they brought like, uh, like Santo and Johnny. I mean, they did. They did yeah. the, uh, the pedal steel guitars, and, and they had that sound.
So it was like a, a reverb drench, really cool sound that like bent into surf music. And so I probably came in, you know, maybe I was like 12, 13 years old, and I heard about Fender guitars, and I saw somebody like playing a Fender guitar. It's like immediately, I mean, I was already a surfer. I mean, I was a young surfer, but it just, uh, it fascinated me. So I wasn't really a natural musician, but I liked the idea of, of rock music. I was like, you know, I was seduced by just all that, that reverb and the sounds that were coming. It just seemed like like a, a, a breakthrough of like, unique music all at once because I went from all the, the white boy music of the 50s like everything was like you know kind of kind of uh, cookie cutter type stuff to like you started getting the cooler bands you know like you know starting to like like I said Dwayne Eddy and mm -hmm. that sort of thing and uh, Buddy Holly and Link Ray I mean really was the first one to like I mean I think he, he recorded uh, Rumble in like a chicken coop with a broken amplifier yeah. but like as a kid, when you heard that on the radio, you had no idea what it was, except it just seemed badass. I yeah. mean, just, you know, that sound. So I kind of wanted to do that. So I found, like, a friend of mine that, like, his brother played guitar, and I told him just to, you know, I got a guitar and told him to teach me. So I started a surf band. So my first band was a surf band, because nice. it just happened to be all the friends that I surfed with. Yeah. What was the so, name of the band? Me and the Others. Me and the Others. That's a great name. That's right. Let's <laughs> bring them back. And how, how, far did you, how far did that go? It went, it went pretty far. I mean, I played in a lot of different bands. I, I made... You know, money as a musician probably for from the time I was in uh, ninth grade to first year of college, so like five years. And I Great. played, I played pretty steady. I mean, I played with my regular guys, but that was like a, a real band yeah. with like all the arguments that go with a real band and like all the craziness that goes with a real band. Yeah. And we went from like you know the the surf music to like original songs and and actually played like all over North San Diego County. So we had like you know we had real gigs. I had. You know promoters and things like that that I made deals with and made money. Then at night I would play with uh, country and western bands to make real money. Oh wow! Yeah, so I actually played with like local country and western bands. Um, the banjo? Huh? Banjo? No, I played. I played lead guitar, mm -hmm. and I would just like fill in. You know, there was uh, I don't know if you heard of Barbara Mandrell. Yeah, sure. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Cool. Well, she would like went to our high school, and her father oh, owned wow. a local music store, so he was always like hooking me up with the guitars I needed and things like that. And he said, you know, you really like, you know, he said, I, I really dig your band and everything like that. He said, but they're a bunch of losers, man. You really, if you want to make some money, you yeah, can just like kick, come and like film with my daughter. Kick to the curb. Yeah. You know, so I would like go out there and I would just, you know, she was like a one-man show. She played the drums and guitars and things like that. So she was always like a showcase thing. Mm -hmm. And so I would just like fill in for a missing guitar player or, you know, and they always paid like cash money, you know. I had to wear like a little suit and everything like that. Uh -huh. But still, it was. I want to see pictures of that. <laughs> Let's use that in the promo for the show. I think we, I think Barbara Manjo, I think I learned about her on Solid Gold. I think she was a guest when you were time five, and stuff like that. right? Yeah. yeah. And then about the time I guess I was a senior in high school, everything started breaking in in uh, in San Francisco, and I started seeing the first signs of, um, you know, this this, I wouldn't know what you call it. You just call it the new age of, of everything. You know, right. first of all, you'd hear the sounds. You know, you heard like you know a band like Moby Grape. And these guys were like on speed playing like lead guitar runs like faster than you've ever heard anybody play before. Yeah. And so you're like wondering like what all this stuff is. It seems so different than everything else. Mm -hmm. And um, so and I started seeing posters. And like immediately I saw some, some of these little flyers and I knew that like something completely different was going on. They weren't like anything I'd ever seen before. Different look. Huh? Different look. Completely different. So yeah. I wanted to integrate that with our band. And so I started doing the, you know, the posters for the band. I, I did drum heads and you know, painted guitars and things like that. And they weren't quite into it. You know, they said like, you're going to be an artist or a musician, right? Yeah. Whatever, right? And then I actually started doing it for other bands. And so I, pretty soon I had like a little side thing of like silk screening posters for lo local bands and things. Mm. And I was actually, you know, they would have to pay me. Yeah. So I was making more money like 
doing that kind of stuff than I was actually playing with the band because the band always wanted to buy a new microphone or sure. something like that. So the you know the two things kind of led to this whole coagulation around 1968 with uh, the Vietnam War and Jimmy's got to go to like you know he's either going to go in the in the service or he's going to like you know just run to Canada or something like that. So I ended up going to art school mm -hmm. and I had to, I had to do something in order to get some credits in order to like try to and I ended up going in the reserves the Navy reserves yeah. in order to keep from being a grunt in the field. Sure. But at the same time, I went to art school and I got a job and, and started doing artwork. And then one thing led to another, you know, being at the beach and all, I met Rick Griffin uh, at the time. And I'd been doing some, like, underground comic books and cartoons and things like that, but basically mostly on my own. And I met him, and he, like, you know, sort of took me under his wing and kind of made me his understudy and started getting me jobs. At the same time, I met a guy named Ron Cobb. Who's, if you Google him, you'll find out a lot about this particular guy. I mean, he's, he was a, a well-known artist at the time, and he saw me sketching in a... Um, in a restaurant in Westwood where I worked mm. and I was like drawing some cartoons and he came up and he said hey do you have many any more of those and I said yeah I mean I draw like a lot of this shit you know I, I can do it all the time and he said well I got like this company called uh, uh, it's a graphic company and we're distributing cartoons like to underground newspapers and we need somebody that draws like funky weird junk like you're drawing there he said do, do, you, do this thing say anything I said oh yeah I got like whole stories and everything like that so I started putting together some panels and gave it to his company and they distributed them and I started getting like shown in uh, you know, the East Village Other and, and uh, you know, Boston Papers, all over the country, they were, like, showing up. Wow. So I was sort of, like, getting distributed without, like, having any, any power base at all. They were right. just, like, suddenly they were, because they, they needed people that could do funky cartoons. Yeah. And I was, like, a graphic artist, but I had, wasn't really very, um, I don't know, sophisticated, you know. My sure. stuff was still kind of funky, mm -hmm. and I was trying to get, you know, figure out what to do at the same time going to art school. And then I started getting album covers from Rick, and I really couldn't take the time to go to art school and I figured that it would almost be better if I just like just cut myself loose and started developing art. a style, like yeah. a funky style. Like I thought like everything I don't learn might be to an advantage to me because I would like, because I couldn't really compete like on the same level as, as some of the guys I saw. I thought they're like, shit is crazy good, right? Yeah. So I thought I'd just, you know, keep my funkiness and just keep refining it. And it worked out pretty well. And, uh, so so well. hearing you talk about it, you know, you make it sound like, you know, one thing, like shit just happens, right? Kind of, yeah. Um, I mean, that's great. Uh, at, at what point was there a plan? Like, like, were you thinking, I'm going to be a musician for my career, and then it just sort of shifted gears? But, like, how, how conscious were you of, like, what kind of career path you're going down? I mean, from, a, you know, from an emotional aesthetic viewpoint, I would rather be a musician. I enjoyed music more than I enjoyed, like, sitting in a dark room doing artwork. I mean, I like jamming with people and things yeah. like that. But and did you have thoughts that like that that was a real career option? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was. I, I played with a lot of a lot of good people. I mean, it, 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 towards the end when I realized that like art was like taking up a lot of my time, and I had a kid, and mm -hmm. I had you know I had a wife, mm -hmm. and I had to make some money, and so art was the one thing I could actually make money like pretty quickly. Whereas music, I would still play with people, and I could make money, but usually I would tie myself to somebody big and like you know fill in as a rhythm section right. or you know, like just make someone else look good. Yeah. So that was like kind of towards the end, that was kind of where I went. And then I think I I tried out for a, company, uh, a band called Pacific Gas and Electric. They oh, were yeah. like looking around for guitarists and I got beaten out by Randy California, I think, or somebody like that. And, and I mean, it was like one of those kind of things to go see yeah. where you just set up your guitar and, and you start playing and, with the band. And I was like, I was like pretty good at the time, but the guy like, you know, like blues were like really starting to happen mm -hmm. in a big way. And the guy, like, when he finished, he goes, like, 
He said, wow, you're like the best psychedelic surfing guitar player I've ever heard of. He said, but like, we're not looking for psychedelic surfing guitar. I mean, now I, you know, I can start a band just with that alone, right? Yes, sir. You, don't you have a band now? <laughs> you and Ned? No. no, we just do the stuff in the background, you know? Um, but yeah, it was like say? it was like at the time it was kind of an insult. I thought like, wow, I haven't even lost that. that you know, it's like still stuck with me. Yeah. You know, I crank up the reverb and everything I did had that, that still that same sound, that Dwayne Eddy twang to it. Yeah. And, it, and in the early '70s, that really wasn't like what anybody was looking for. So I just like gave it up. Mm-hmm. And I got a sitar and I went to like uh, Ravi Shankar's school. You're kidding. And I learned to play the sitar. Wow. And I thought like, you know, if somebody needs a sitar player, I'll just like fill in. Played in the background with a couple a couple of different groups, just playing sitar for a while, and then what uh, is a sitar? Eddie, when's the last time you hired a sitar player? <laughs> I don't even know what a sitar is. What is a sitar? Is that that really long? Guitar? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like an Indian, Indian guitar. Yeah, song. yeah, yeah. Right. And when, when you go to when you go to something like Ravi Shankar's school, you uh, I mean, you learn to sit. I mean, you spend like yeah. probably the first three months just sitting, Back. you know, in the pose. Right. Yeah. And then. And then, of course, as soon as you start playing or something like that, the guy keeps coming and grabbing your shoulder and says, you're a guitar player. You keep playing like a guitar player. Stop playing like a guitar player. I'm like, That's going to hurt. You keep doing that to my shoulder. <laughs> so that was that, that. My music career just kind of faded off. And then I yeah. went to Hawaii, and uh, art became like, like everything. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was always like, that's probably what, I mean, if you say like the, you know, the, what was the lingering effect of my music career would be the fact that I immediately got involved in rock music. Yeah, right, music doing posters. Posters and, yeah. and things like that. So I was that, along so well was, that it, was that intentional or was it, did it just happen? It, it just happened. That's kind of where I went, yeah. I mean, artistically. Yeah. I mean, my style was, was came from underground comics. Mm-hmm. So it had, and I guess when what I What were to, the comics that you grew up reading or being influenced by? I mean, when I was a little kid? Yeah. Just, yeah Mad like, Magazine, probably, okay. would be the biggest influence that influenced me. And then, I mean, I read, I read Superman and, yeah. and all the comics, but I would say that... If but I, like, it, like what, what would you say was like the kind of open your eyes to like underground comics? Because that's a bit of a different world. And Mad Magazine. Yeah. I mean, when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that like bubbled around in my head that mm-hmm. like when, when I got into underground comics, I understood like immediately sort of... I mean, when I saw the first underground comic book, I sort of saw what those guys were doing. I thought, like, wow, they just, like, dropped acid and they scrambled their brains and, like, all that shit that they saw when they were little kids just bubbled up and they've, like, you know, refined illustrated it, it and yeah, yeah. illustrated it. Do you so, remember that shit, man? What? Like, I grew up, like, I wasn't into it, but there was kids in my class that had, like, freak brothers. See, I, knew, I wasn't and, into that, never was exposed to it. Yeah? But yeah. I'm from Kentucky, so it wasn't yeah, yeah. a big thing. Yeah, I grew up in San yeah, Francisco, we were, so it was a little, yeah, we that stuff was around, you know. We weren't too hip. One kid had, uh, on the school bus, like, one kid had a penthouse. Well, and the other kid had had, uh, had Freak Brothers, and you're like, who am I going to sit next to today? Like, you know, Penthouse <laughs> wins every time. Usually, yeah, it wins every time. I mean, the the idea of it at the time, it was hard. To, it was hard to imagine. Like, it's hard to go back to like what was happening at that time because you came out of the '50s and you had the early '60s, which were kind of like the backwash of the '50s. Right. But then, when right after Kennedy's assassination, what I would say was like the underground in a big way, like like sort of came 
into being. Like you started seeing like articles, like re really weird articles written by you know really good underground writers and things like that, like skewing reality in a whole different way. Mm. And then when comic books came along and the underground comic books, it skewed the comic book reality in a whole different way. So the subversion of that, like what it did and what it led to in pop culture, was pretty huge. I mean, it, it really made a big difference. I mean, it was like seductive and different, and it was like it was like you know, taking the piss out of like, you know, like consensual culture mm -hmm. in a way that those people couldn't even understand. And of course, towards the end, I mean, Playboy magazine, like took all the underground cartoonists and like put them all together in a magazine. I did like a surfing, you know, comic book with Rick Griffin and in, uh, in Surfer magazine. We had Robert, uh, Robert Crumb and all those guys. Oh, in cool. Surfer? In Surfer. How old is Surfer? It's been around that Surfer's long. Surfer's been like since 1962. Wow. This comic book was done in like 69, 70. Wow. <laughs> what, what was it called? Tales from the Tube. Tales That's from awesome. the tube. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And that was, uh, I mean, and then the underground stuff with the Freak Brothers and stuff like that sort of like lingered on into the 70s, but then it was pretty much over. It was sort of like like, like Woodstock uh, versus, uh, you know, the Monterey Pop Festival. Like mm -hmm. the Monterey Pop Festival was really a thing. Right. But Woodstock, like if you'd went to the Monterey Pop Festival, which I did, then by the time Woodstock came along, it was like all that stuff was pretty much over. You're really looking at like the backwash of like sort of what's left or like, a next generation of people yeah, getting so into that's it. Interesting. The mainstream version. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, who'd you see at Monterey Park? Uh, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. yeah. And Rabbi Shankar. Really? Uh, yeah. Damn. How was that show? I mean, it, it was, what I had done is I, I'd, I'd met this girl and, and we went to see, um, uh, let's see, we went to see a big show at the Whiskey. Uh, I'm trying to think of who it was. Uh, Otis Redding. And when we were leaving there, there was like a big fence that was like on Sunset Boulevard. And it had like the names of like all the San Francisco bands and things like that. So as I'm driving down to the end of this thing, I'm going, holy crap, what is that? You know, it's just like, not only that, but all the cool English bands. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lacey, the, the, all the greatest bands you'd ever imagine, yeah. but fresh right then and on there. On one billboard. And then at the end, it had like a phone number, you know. So I like wrote down the phone number when I got home. I called up a phone number, and they only had tickets to the, the Hendrix Show and, and uh, Ravi Shankar. So I, I just bought tickets to those things. Yes. So then we drove up to San Francisco, went through Big Sur, and we you know we went to Monterey and basically spent you know the week there, going to the festival, but only able to go to those two shows. Mm -hmm. But like seeing those two shows, and then afterwards, and I I didn't know really what uh, what Hendrix would be about because Hey Joe was on the radio. Hey Joe, where you going with that gun of yours? And I thought he was kind of a funky, sort of heavy, you know, like folk guy or something like that based on Hey Joe. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, being there that night and like seeing that performance. I mean, you've seen the Way performance, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then you're looking around, everybody and everybody's like mouths hanging open. So then I thought, yeah. damn. And then I heard he was playing in San Francisco at the Fillmore. So then we drove up there to stay there and, and meet some of my friends. And I went to the Fillmore and saw him play there. You know, yeah. and it's, it's uh, I mean, in those days, you could actually walk up to the front of the stage. Sure. Everybody else is dancing around, eating apples and dropping acid. And you just sit like, you know, he's here and you're like sitting there. And I'm just watching him. You know, it's like play. So then I went home and told the band about, you know, what I'd seen. And I was trying <laughs> to like, I was saying, we really got to get it together. Yeah, and and up, I'm trying to describe this the guitar play. I said, yeah, the guy plays like he plays backwards. And I said, I don't think he, he doesn't reverse his guitar or his strings. I said, so he plays the strings upside down. And I said, I can't guarantee that he ever actually tunes his guitar. Right. I said, it looked to me like he just <laughs> bends the strings into tune 
the way when he plays, you know. How about this? You're in a band, <laughs> and the dude comes in. He's like, "Yo, we got to get like Hendrix." <laughs> no doubt. That's crazy. And then that, uh, and then our experience album came out, and I threw it down, and I said, like, I mean, that's the look, and they're going, "Whoa, what's that, man? That guy's like dressed like a girl." A little much. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. I would have loved to have seen Jimi Hendrix. Anyway, so it was, it was those kind of things that were happening at the time that that kind of like galvanized, you know, in, in your mind. And of course, on the way up there, I saw Blow Up. Yeah, that, that movie about the photographer in London. Yeah. So then I had I had to get my camera, you know. And I thought like, man, that's sexy. That's yeah. like, that's what's going on in London, you know. Remember it had uh, the Yardbirds in there. Yeah, yeah. Like playing at the club. Yeah. It had Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck on stage. Mm-hmm. And the kids were like standing in the club, going like this, you know, right? And they're like watching these guys like tear their guitars apart, and they right. hadn't, and those, like nobody had any idea what was going on. They were just like, hmm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> this is not danceable. Does that does that happen? Do you think? Still, what? Like, uh, you know, can you get up on stage and just completely blow people's minds with something that they've never seen before? I suppose you could, but it would be harder than it was then. I mean, then it was easier just because there was, I mean, when you look at the time frame, say if you look back in time and you see like what I'm talking about, sort of the, the early 60s, it was still pretty slow, right? Yeah. And then the Beatles came along, you know, with their thing, and then, you know, they went from like, you know, zero to like, like psychedelic, you know, minstrels in like right. what three and a half years yeah so things were like were like pretty compressed at that time i mean yeah. even the beach boys went from what they were into like complete acid heads and doing mm-hmm. their good vibrations so everything was like pretty different so people were going up on stage and like doing things that were you know demonstrably hadn't been done before i mean even even uh, jim morrison i mean now you've seen like a billion people have imitated him but like when he first stood on stage with his leather pants and doing his his whole shtick it sure. looked pretty different yeah you know because you hadn't seen anybody really act like that before well, yeah. i guess modern days like daft punk right yeah i guess so and like that's yeah. the biggest thing to like freak people out you know, yeah i mean i find doesn't that do it anymore that's a great point I, I mean i find that really interesting that you know we can look back throughout history whether it's elvis the beatles easy e ozzy osbourne right like there are these times sex pistols people talk about that show Right. That one night in London where or in in uh, in uh, Manchester. Right. And where like something that's never been done before happens for the first time. And there's a small group of people that see it. And then the rest of the world hears about it. Like over time. Yeah. Right. And, you know, and I wonder how much of that is left. None. For, for music. Right? None. Festivals. You know, everybody gets to play and see everything. When you think about it, it's got to be possible online. again, just because no matter what anybody's done, there's got to be something that everybody hasn't seen before or no, nobody expects. I mean, the fact like is, we, we become like jaded thinking like, wow, we got yeah. all this stuff. And like, how can you, how can you how surprise can you me? Better? Right. Yeah. I mean, somebody will come along and surprise us, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, when you think about, uh, when you think about pop music, it's almost like, um, like there was an explosion in the late, you know, late 40s. You had like Frank Sinatra, and then you got the Elvis thing, and you got all the, all the white right. boys and stuff like that. And then the English invasion, and they reintroduced like America to like, you know, black music and, mm-hmm. and brought that back. And then the whole thing combined into like a really sort of cool, like really hot center right about the mid-60s. Around 1970, if you look at the charts in 70, you can see like every month there were like great albums put out by everybody, every kind of music right. all together, you know, yeah. from like... Sabbath to Funkadelic, Parliament Funkadelic, right? Mm-hmm. And then everything in between. I mean, Simon and Garfunkel. Sure. I mean, there's like not a single genre in 1970 you can think of that wasn't touched. I mean, Marvin Gaye. Yeah. You know, so you had soul music, you had, I mean, everything. Music was banging. Music was banging. I always like say 70s was like, was probably like the, the white heat and then everything began to cool off after that. I mean, you've had like, you know, you've had the punk 
and you know had uh, yeah, hip hop new uh, wave hip hop was an explosion. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean hip hop no, has probably continued out longer than almost anything. In terms, like I was talking to him today, I said like, right now hip hop is like probably the voice of American politics in terms of like you know making a a, a sound that, that people need to hear. You got mm-hmm. Killer Mike mm-hmm. on the uh, on yeah, the, Killer Mike's a factor in yeah, this man. in this election. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. yeah, yeah. And then Beyonce goes on like the Super Bowl halftime and like rechannels the the, uh, the Black Panthers. Like everybody's like, "Who are the Black Kendrick's Panthers?" Killing right? it. Kendrick's <laughs> yeah. killing it too. Huh? Yeah, hey, yeah. What about yeah, Anderson Pac? Maybe for both of you, I'm curious what uh, what music is impacting you today. Like, I'm sure you stay in touch through your work, right, to, mm-hmm. with, with what's happening. This guy knows more about music than anybody I know. I mean, his playlist in the car, I couldn't even believe it. We drove to Coachella. I'm like, what are you doing listening to this shit? He, he's hipper than I am. So what's new music that, that still has an impact on you? I would say <clears throat> I would say rap and hip-hop right now probably has the biggest impact on me in terms of, like, you know, listening to new things. I mean, I like, uh, I mean, I like War on Drugs, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I can't say there's anything new about it. I mean, it's like, it's like everything I've ever heard, like, put together into like a really nice package that I really enjoy listening to, but at the same time, it's like, there's not like a single guitar lick or like even vocal phrasing that hasn't been done before, but the guy does it like so well, yeah. you know, that I really like it. Yeah. Uh, I like, uh, I mean, I like Kendrick Lamar a lot. I like Royal Blood. You seen those kids? Yeah. Two brothers from, Australia, New yeah. Zealand, two guys, okay. a drummer and a guitar player. Sounds like a five-piece band. Really? Yeah, we saw him with Raymond at Coachella. Yeah. yeah. Pretty good. I like Run the Jewels a lot. I guess if yeah. I were going to say all my best bands would be like, you know, Run the Jewels, Kendrick Lamar, Anderson Pac, mm-hmm. uh, those kinds of bands. Hey! Fashion slave, you protested to get in a fucking look book. Everything I scribbles like the anarchist book book. Look good, posing in the center for the cook book. Black on black on black, with the ski mask, that is my crook book. How you like my styling, bruh? Ain't nobody styling, bruh. About to turn this motherfucker up like Rikers Island, bruh. Where my fathers and my cripples and my blooders and my brothers. When you niggas gon' unite and kill the police motherfuckers. Or take over a jail, get them CO's hell. The burning of that sofa, goddamn, I love the smell. Like it's the pillow torches. Where the fuck the warden? And when you find them, we don't kill them. We just waterboard them. We kill them. I listen to that a lot. And I still listen to, you know, I still listen to rock as often as I can, but it's not as much that I like there. I mean, I find myself listening to like 10 year old uh, Queens of the Stone Age. Mm-hmm. I still like that. Mm-hmm. I definitely listen to classic rock more than anything on my Spotify. Yeah? Mm-hmm. What's, what's heavy rotation? I mean, I just. It, I, well, like, what's Spotify, the, what's you can the, pick anything you want. What's the song that, like, you know, when you? I don't know. Yesterday was Steve Miller Band. Okay. Fly yes. Eagle. Super Tramp. Okay. Peter Frampton. 
I, like, I try the, to get weird with it because you can on Spotify. It's like you can just pick a name and play it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I saw Steve Miller band not that long ago. It was like a corporate gig, so it's kind of and he was like corny. He was bitching about the sound and that, sure. and then and, but he got totally upstaged by the Go Go's who opened for him and murdered it. And Recently? Just, yeah, it's like eight years ago. We saw Steely Dan. And like, I mean, he Coachella. was. It was you know, it was cool because you were seeing Steve Miller in a private show, but the Go Go's were like. Crushed it. Blew it away. Right. 60 years old. Yeah. Just, you know, it's still beautiful and just murdered Going it. For it. Yeah. All my hustlers out there, I know you're getting your business on. You need a website. Trying to look good and you got to do it fast and you got to save money. So check out our sponsor, Wix.com. You can do it all by yourself. You can add images, videos, text, social media. It's easy to look great online with a Wix.com website. You get to Wix.com today and go build you a website. It's easy and free. Wix.com. Probably one of the saddest things about American music is the is the lack of jazz or the love of jazz. I mean, I've always yeah. liked, I mean, I've always liked all the Blue Note stuff. I mean, I still listen to jazz a lot, but it's mostly old jazz. It's not that much new jazz that I find. And that's one of the things I liked about Kendrick uh, Lamar because he introduces jazz like in a way that nobody else has yeah. into his, his pieces. Absolutely. I mean, and so I think it turns like a whole new generation on to like what a jazz sound is, like the, the weird syncopations mm -hmm. and things like that. Yeah, I mean, that's what happened for me. I'm a, I'm a huge jazz fan, but I learned about that through hip hop. Mm -hmm. Right, like, you know, it's because I was listening to records and I was like, started understanding about samples. Yeah. And then you go back, it comes you from, know, yeah, dig, dig in the crates. Talk to the dude at the store, what's that sample? And then take the record home and spend the night with it, you know. Well, that was what's interesting about the uh, about the seventies. Like if I say that rock music and stuff like that, I thought like kind of peaked a little bit in the seventies. Jazz like kind of took off with fusion jazz. I mean, you had right. like Herbie Hancock and yeah. Miles Davis doing "Bitches Brew" and all that sort of thing. And then the Weather Report basically just redefined like the whole idea yeah. altogether. I mean, they put everything together into this beautiful sound. And of course, had some of the best musicians of all time playing it. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, jazz was you know jazz really. I mean, it, it it didn't develop anywhere beyond that. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So I want to talk about the art stuff, though, because, you know, I think you have, um, you know, you've, you've been a big factor in, in taking everything that we're talking about, all that energy uh, and, and all of these nuances that are created in music and then turning those into visuals, right? And so whether it's album covers, logos, posters. Websites. Websites, right? Like you, you've sort of taken, um, I was thinking about it this morning and like, I almost think of you as, as sort of a remixer, right? Because you're taking someone's creation and you're translating it. It just happens to be into a different medium right. than what they created in. Um, so I guess my question is how, how much, maybe tell me about the, the process you go through and how much of what we see in your creations is yours versus the artist's. Hmm. That's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, a lot of artists that I work closely with, of course, have ideas that they want. Yeah. You know, so um, uh, uh, when I work with some artists, they've said specifically that, um, um, you know, they want a certain kind of a thing. They want themselves standing in it, you know, floating over the desert with their guitar in their hand and like, you know, like a desert sunset and all that sort who of thing. Who was that? So, huh? who, who asked for that? That uh, guitar player from the Doors, what's his name? Uh, yeah, Doors guitar player. Guitar player? Huh? I don't know. Yeah, Doors guitar player. 
Anyway, the, when, after Ray. the doors broke up, I, I did his first album, and he. Okay. So basically, I just I took him into the kitchen, stood him up on a chair, and took a picture <laughs> of him. I mean, when I need it, when I need a picture, I'll just take. I took a picture, you know. Yeah. So I, a lot of times, I use photography to uh, to get what I needed. Sure. I would say that most of the time, uh, the artist likes you to interpret what they say or interpret their music. Yeah. But I would say in the earlier days, like in the '70s, more often than not. Um, Artists like something really, really specific. Mm -hmm. Although, like I did the Almond Brothers, I did a double package for them, and they just gave me the title. What and was I, it? Uh, you ran with it. Dollar Gas, Wash the Windows, and, and Bit of Oil, or whatever it is. It was like a really long title. Yeah. So I did like the front of an old-time gas station. We were talking to on. Paul. You said that when you do the prints, you just kind of force your image on, on some of the bands or some of the shows, right? I mean, recently, it seems like none of the artists really care uh, what you do as long as you do something interesting. Cool. Yeah. Right. So then it became like I would say that in the in the early '90s, everything, almost everything I did, the band just let me do whatever I wanted to do. And so is that because you became more prominent and had more authority, or is it because like the nature of of digital music distribution does that change the role of of the art, or, or why do you think? I think that the, the bands. Uh, uh, the bands in the 90s, which we call the alt bands, I guess, um, were more collaborative in terms of like they liked to work in collaboration, whereas the earlier bands were more egotistical in terms more of direction. branding and, yeah. and their look and their feel and stuff like that. Yeah. They wanted like a certain kind of a thing, and they wanted, you know, if they wanted a fisheye lens, they wanted a fisheye lens, right? They didn't want like, you know, to do something completely different. They really wanted like really specific kind of things all the time. What about when they're wrong? <laughs> do you tell them? Huh? Do you tell them, or do you let them hang themselves? I don't know. I've seen I've seen bands be really wrong. I saw uh, Rick Griffin did a, a job for Steppenwolf one time, and he did what I thought was like his best piece. I think it's still his best piece. And he did it for the cover, and he turned it in, and they put it on the inside, and they put like just a picture of the band on the outside because they just thought it was too mm, weird. Too much. And I said like, how can it be too much for Steppenwolf, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen I've seen like a lot of really good art just turned down. Yeah, you know, I've had my own art turned out. I've had like whole things completely done, printed up, put in the factory, and never released. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I did one for a band called Dusty Drapes and the Dusters, and and the, the album got printed and everything, and never got released. Yeah, I've also done like things where the record company, I would say in the '70s, the record companies had their own ideas and the artists had their own ideas. So a lot of times they would hire me to do two album covers, uh, and right. a lot of times the artist album cover would never get done because the idea was that I, they would send me over to his house. He would tell me what he wants. I would try to do what he wants and get, get it through sketch stages. And then they would tell me what they were going to do, you know, mm -hmm. without telling him. Mm -hmm. And then I would, or her, right. and then I would do like a, a one for them, but I would do it more finished, right? Yeah. And so then they would have meetings and things like that and say, well, we're really going to go with this one instead of this one, even though that was your idea. So the idea was to like give him a choice, knowing without giving, that they, the, without giving him a choice. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I to appease the so artist. So it, happened how, half a dozen it sounds like times. you're pretty collaborative with, with the artist, right? Like you're. You're spending time with them in person and sometimes right yeah 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 i have a lot of times sometimes you don't even see them right it's a manager you talk to right right, right. sure the managers can be come even harder what's been the most interesting of those interactions in terms of like someone having ideas that really inspired you um i enjoyed working with neil young on uh, russ never sleeps just because he let me do Everything on it. Although he was he was like way way more specific than I'd I'd want him to be, but at the same time, like working with him was fun because he was a real collaborator. Yeah. Except that he he had an idea that I thought was pretty funky at the time, 
and it and I thought, you know, like I really want to do like a really cool Neil Young album cover, and he had this idea of like uh, sort of this Jawas, uh, you know, raising a microphone over Iwo Jima or something like. Anyway, Russ never sleeps. If you ever saw the poster, it's like little Jawa characters, like in the raising a microphone. Okay. And he's like standing up on on uh, on the guitar cases or music cases, and he's like playing his guitar. So he looks like you know the wind is blowing. You on did him. that, huh? You did that. Yeah, Russ never sleeps. And then I did I the, mean, the uh, names just keep coming. And I did the yeah. you know the title for the movie we'll too. Yeah, that. the Beastie Boys are like low on the list <laughs> here, I guess. I mean, the Beastie Boys are probably the most complete collaboration of all time. But then, uh, the you what'd know, you do with that? Ill communication. Okay. And I think. That was an interesting one because Mike D, you know, like he came in and, and I don't know where he got this idea, but just like out of the blue, he says, he said, you know, can you do like that, that uh, architectural lettering, you know, like they do in high school, mm -hmm. like drafting class. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just so happened. And I was like, this is like something that I, I still actually did at the time because yeah. I always dug that lettering. And I said, so I like started, I lettered out his name and I lettered out the, the Beastie Boys name and all this stuff. He's like, that's exactly what I want. He said, can you create an alphabet like that? Yeah. And he said, we're going to like set all the type in, in the album cover. So that's sort of Lyrics. where it started. That's then it cool. started out as kind of like a, a Miles Davis, Bitches Brew kind of a look mm -hmm. and morphed beyond morphing into like all manner of things. I mean, there was a, a point where I was like, I was up snowboarding in Mammoth and, and I got a call from him and he wanted a dog in a phone booth with a Superman cape on. And he said he just needed it sketched, and could I sketch it out and just like you know fax it down to L.A. because that was like an idea. Yeah. And so like I'm up in Mammoth, so I'm like looking for a fax machine up there, and like you drew it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, we ended up with the one you see where like the little guy with the you know at that squawk box or something like that at yeah. a fast food drive through, drive through yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And now you and Mike do your neighbors, right? Yeah. You see him in the water ever? <laughs> never, never. Yeah. But it was uh, that was interesting. I mean, we did so much work for that thing that, that we couldn't even like turn in the art. We just like sent. An entire hard drive at, mm -hmm. at that time over to like you know, the record company and just yeah. said, there you go. Go it's, for it's it. It's got everything on it. It's like if you want to make changes, it's like every iteration of the album. Right. I mean, there's just, like 30 album covers on there. <clears throat> wow. Go crazy with it. That's that. cool. That's so cool. Wait, was there a time um, when you sort of realized the impact that your art was having? Like you're out in the streets and you see somebody wearing a T-shirt, or you see, like, was. Was there a moment for you where that, that kind of struck you? Hmm. The oh wow moment. I mean, in the beginning, I got my stuff got distributed pretty quickly. Yeah. And really, that was my only goal. Um, I was like, I didn't really want to be a fine artist very much, and I kind of punished myself by being a total, almost a complete commercial artist, like just you know concentrating almost solely on commercial art. Mm -hmm. And I wanted like my stuff to be seen like a Coca-Cola sign or something like that. Like I always admired that as a kid. Like I saw that lettering on the Coca-Cola sign, I kept thinking, wow, who did that? I wonder who did that. So mm -hmm. I, well, I really want like people to like go through life wondering like who did this and who did that. So once my stuff got hung in record stores, I mean, that yeah. was pretty much I'd already reached my first goal. You, what was the first thing you saw in the record store? 
from the um, Alice Coltrane album. Mm. Her first album. So you walk in the store and it's hanging on the wall. And it's on the show. Like, hey, that's me. Right. So, so you know he did Lollapalooza too, right? So he did the okay. huge stage. So it's like, how, how tall were those? 20? 30 feet tall. 30 yes. feet tall characters that Jim did. Yeah. But like seeing the stuff in the, all through the 70s, it was like that because everything I did, I did a lot of t-shirts. When I went to Hawaii, I did nothing but like t-shirts and posters and things like that. So everywhere I went, my stuff was. So I pretty much achieved my goal like right out of the box. It wasn't yeah. like I felt like, well, people kind of like think I suck and they're not really paying any attention to me. Right. I thought like, you know, and then I saw the um, the residual aspect of it was the fact that like once people saw something, they wanted something more like that, yeah. you know? And I and it became like its own self-fulfilling prophecy. Like say for instance, if I, I did a skateboard poster with a cowboy on it, and then suddenly I got like like uh, country western album covers and and all sorts of things. So my yeah. rep would be getting like you know they go, hey people want more of this like the, that old time cowboy thing, and so like I did like a lot of old time cowboy stuff. And it was just because I had driven by like a like a sign for like a uh, orange crate sign, and I really liked it a lot. Mm -hmm. So I did a skateboard poster. I wanted to like do orange crate you know mm -hmm. California, and I thought like what would be old California? I thought hmm, Tom Mix or some cowboy you know with a big yeah. hat. You know, the friendly cowboy, you know, yeah. like holding a skateboard like that with <laughs> palm trees behind him. And everybody liked it. Yeah. But it was just, I just did it because uh, I just, it kind of fit that Orange Crate label look. So it's funny, I mean, because it sounds like, you know, you can sort of manipulate people's taste, right? Like by showing them stuff that they they react to. Um, are, you, are you then conscious of that in your process? Like, I'm going to create this because I want to do more of it, or I'm not going to create this because I don't want to. Don't no, I mean, yeah. Once I once I saw the the how it worked, I became very conscious of it. Yeah, and I read uh, I read a lot of philosophy at one time, and I put a lot of um, philosophy into the work, like ideas of um, using color to manipulate people, using design to manipulate people, or causing people's eye to fall, you know, where I wanted it to. And I found that that I could. Um, like like a graphic mu magician, I could do what I wanted to do. Like I could make people see what I wanted to see. So eventually, that became like kind of important to me. Yeah. Like I I would uh, I would design a concept, and I wanted like you know if I wanted to focus like right on one spot on the page, that would be like all I would concentrate on is like doing that. Like sure. through the manipulation of color and form, and like you know fading or you know things being more in focus, and it'd be, it'd be like you know painting. I could paint a hand and like you know the tips of the fingernails. You know you'd have to look at that because there was something in that hand, right? right. And then the face would be over here, and I knew that I could do that, and I that really became one of the things that that drove me to create more things like that. Yeah, does so it, I went from one thing to another like that. Does it ever go wrong? Hmm. Yeah, I think I think at the end of the '70s I started getting too tight. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so then we lead into a whole other area where it's like it's like my sense of precision like got so precise that. Like I was telling, uh, I was telling Risk that um, we were talking about like forms and like doing letter forms and things like that. I said I got to the point where I bought like every French curve. I mean old French curves like swap beats and things like that. That I had to believe that if I couldn't find the curve on a French curve, that I wouldn't use that curve. So like for instance, I was doing like the lettering for Chicago for their album cover for the um, Hot Streets. Where they they had did the like, logo, right? Uh, yeah, the logo. Yeah. Where they had, they did neon logo. Yeah. I mean, this thing was only going to appear on the album about this big. Yeah. But I drew it like this big. I mean, it was a big and then like every arc on there was like French curved. I mean, mm. first of all, I would draw it out by hand. Right? Yeah. And then I would go in there with French curves and try to find every curve. And if I couldn't find a curve, I would redo the curve to make it, mit, you know. Mm -hmm. So it became like like rules almost, like yeah. my own personal rules, building a, you know, a habitat for myself. 
so the I think at the, at the end of the seventies I was getting just tight. You know, it's like it was too too perfect. I mm-hmm. couldn't break out of it. That's that's when uh, I got into the thing with Richard, and when he Do started, yeah, yeah, and he he was much looser, and he actually loosened me up a lot uh, yeah, in terms of like. You know, saying, you know, if you found out I didn't like a color, then he would use that color. You know, and with the collaboration, <laughs> so it was like a band collaboration where we were it's like, a great partnership. Yeah, what a know. jerk. He's going, like, What chord you don't, don't like you like? And I say, I, You know, I, I really hate A minor. He's like, Well, let's make this song A minor. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, after a few years with him, that was, that was a really good thing for me because it took me yeah. from that, because I couldn't get away from it. It was sort of like I'd gone as far as I could, and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't take that one thing any further. So then when I did the, 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 the rock posters in the 90s, you know, well, 89, 90, I went back to the comic book style that I did, like, in 69, and I tried to draw, like, kind of unsophisticated, you know, mm-hmm. like, like I did then. Simple. First of all, I, yeah, simple. I, I brought out my brushes, and I did, like, you know, brush stroke shading and things like that. So I limited myself in terms of, like, what, you know, I could do. How hard is it to go back? I find it. At first, I found it hard. Then, then I find it easier and easier. Yeah, I think that any artist, um, especially fine artists, you you want to go back. I mean, you want to go back. You can't like help but to think about when you were uh, a child, mm. like five or six years old, when you were sitting on the rug, you know, and and you get a bowl of grapes or something like that, and you'd have like a little piece of paper, and you were like drawing tanks and airplanes and things Muscling like that. In. Yeah, and all the things that you really enjoyed, like you really want to get back to like how excited you were mm-hmm. about like making that little war scene work or something like that while you're watching television, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, you definitely want to get back to, you don't want to get more sophisticated, you actually want to get less. Yeah. Because your techniques are like uh, like riding a bicycle. I mean, I could literally paint or draw almost anything I wanted to in almost any medium that I wanted to, but why would I want to? Sure. You know, you got to yeah. have a reason to do it. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, an, you know, I ask because I think for a lot of artists, you know, musicians or, or visual artists, right? Uh, you kind of start out and then something connects with an audience and then that becomes the trajectory for everything else you create, right? And we've seen that a lot in music where, you know, you have this one hit and then everything else sounds Trying like that. Trying to follow it, yeah. And um, where maybe before everything didn't sound like that, that was just one thing they were doing. I think in a lot of cases, that wasn't the intention, right? It just sort of happened. Right, but then you know you get stuck in that, in the um, rut, trying to recreate. Right, th- that's that's the biggest problem. I mean, you put your finger on the biggest problem. I mean, any any musician or artist, and there's a lot of them get stuck in that rut. Yeah, I mean, I've known a lot of people that, that have done it. They just you know, they do one thing and then everybody likes it, and then they just keep doing that thing over and over again until finally they until people stop liking it. Yeah, until yeah. they don't get arrested for doing it anymore. Right. right? Yeah, and. It, and so, how do you keep yourself out of that? I've, I've, I've. It's been easy for me just because I get bored really quickly. Mm. Like, I mean, I get bored with myself, so it hasn't been difficult for me. And I've tried, you know, I've jumped for. I mean, when you look at what I've done, I've jumped pretty successfully from one thing to another, like going from like really funky underground cartoons to pretty sophisticated album covers and like and like uh, high end advertising. I mean, by the mid '70s, I was doing you know advertising for Chiat Day and and all those things. So. Yeah. What I did was, uh, I mean, I had like sort of this, this weird moment when I was in Hawaii where I was, I, I brought in all my cartoons and, and this uh, advertising agency like had called me in because they'd seen the cartoons and there wasn't that many people in, in, in Hawaii that did that kind of thing. And they asked me to do like, they said, could you, could you do like little funny airplanes, you know, like flying over pineapple fields on the islands and stuff like that. And then we just put our logo on it. And I said, yeah, I mean, I could, I could do that. And it's like, okay, so we'll pay you like 
five for it. And I said, I was thinking, because I used to get like 500 bucks for like a, a full comic book. Right. You know, maybe yeah. 250 for a, and they uh, gave you five a t-shirt. Grand. They gave me like five grand for drawing like a little, you know, like a little cartoon airplane. Yeah. And I'm thinking, in my head, I'm thinking, this is like free money. <laughs> You're so, like, I need to do more of this. <laughs> sure. I said, so you want a little cartoon airplane flying and you want like a little cartoon pineapple and things like that? And I'm yeah. like, okay, yeah. I could do that, yeah. Yeah. Had you always wanted to do uh, brand stuff, advertising, or did, was that like was that a compromise for you? Or was no, it actually, yeah, that I had that was like about? that was another part of my punishment uh, of myself because I had seen I had I had grown up on on uh, really sophisticated advertising in the '60s, and also in the '60s, advertising uh, illustrators and type designers and things like that were probably the most left-wing, outspoken mm. purveyors of like politics. In America, sure. I mean, you had uh, Milton Glaser and Seymour Quas and all those guys like doing all these different al- um, magazines and posters and things like that. So I saw like these guys like putting really sophisticated work, you know, which I saw like almost hypnotic type work. I mean, these guys these guys were like masters of imagery, and they were like telling people what to think and what to say and and how to think. And yeah. I thought you know, I like that idea, the idea of like propaganda. So I saw my work as like as like uh, kind of propaganda of like what goes on in my mind you know like my viewpoint mm-hmm. and i could like like getting it out through advertising and things like that would just be another way to get it out like yeah. for instance if they'd hire me to do like cartoon characters you know i could like you know cartoonize like a whole thing that normally hadn't been cartoonized before and that kind of pleased me you know i like that idea but i i had been very influenced by advertising in the 60s i mean yeah. seeing like you know i mean there was some that was probably the golden age of of advertising. That's the Mad Men, right? Yeah, the Mad Men. Yeah. Mad and so, like, in my mind, that was always in the back of my mind. So, like, when the when the shot came, I thought, I mean, I understood completely what to do with it. Yeah. And I jumped right into it. So, when I came back to the mainland, besides for doing the, the album cover, they did a lot of advertising art. Mm-hmm. Any pieces you're, you're most proud of or that stand out to you? Most of the stuff just, like, faded into the woodwork. I mean, yeah. they would pay, like, $10,000 to do a baseball. You know, and then it would have it like on a Dodger billboard or something right. like that. So yeah. a lot of that stuff just becomes like a piece of something else. Sure. You know, it never, I mean, I got kind of tired of that. I did a lot of uh, magazine illustration. Like I did, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a thing for uh, Timothy Lear, but mostly men's magazines. Men's magazines were paying a lot more and they were yeah. doing like big double truck spreads. So there was like an article about Timothy Leary after he got out of prison. He'd written an article about, uh, you know, his experiences in prison, so I illustrated that for, I think, uh, Wii Magazine. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of stuff for Wii Magazine and, mm-hmm. and different magazines and worked for a lot of art directors. Mm-hmm. But those, some of those things kind of stood out, but still they were really just sophisticated illustrations. Yeah. Did you have mentors helping you figure this stuff out, or were you just uh, completely on your own? Um, I met a lot of really good art directors. I mean, and, uh, Dean Torrance from Jan and Dean. Him and I like hit it off really well when I came back from Hawaii, and and uh, I did the Beach Boys stuff with him, mm-hmm. and some of his stuff. Um, what, did he, did he, was there anything that he taught you that? I would say everybody remember? everybody along the way actually taught me things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're wondering like like where did I learn these techniques? Yeah, I mean, not so much the the art techniques, but more just how to think about your business and your brand and your, you know, where you're going. Like, did you, like are you just you know, are you figuring that out all on your own, or, or I'm always curious about the help we get along the way. I would say that, that uh, everybody that, that that I work with actually helped me quite a bit, and I probably picked their brains for like every possible detail. I mean, anytime I went into something, say for instance, if I went into a print shop and I had a print job, I would try to learn like everything there was about printing, uh, every detail about it. 
So when I met Rick, for instance, you know, I, the first thing I asked him was like how he did the color separations on his poster because I couldn't, I couldn't figure out like from what I knew how these things were done. Yeah. And he showed me this technique that was like uh, where he got like these blue lines. For instance, he did like he did his entire thing in black and white, right? Then he would send it up to San Francisco and they had this Oslis machine at a big print shop up there that could make a blue print reproduction of his drawing that didn't shrink. Like previously, all blueprint drawings shrunk slightly, so it made it impossible to do these things. Mm. So what he'd do is he put registration marks on this black and white, and he'd get four pieces back. Then he was able to draw like on every one of those pieces and send the whole mess to the printers, and they were able to line up everything. Mm -hmm. And that's how he created those like beautiful like Grateful Dead album covers with like all those Bende Different screens layers, yeah. like, going. You know? Yeah. And he also told me about this little uh, plastic thing where it had like all the Bende screens and like ten, twenty. 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever the percentage were, and you could pull them out and you could lay them on top of one another. So when you're like doing this thing, you'd know exactly what angle to put the screens on top of one another so when they laid, they wouldn't create like a moray pattern. That was another thing I couldn't figure out is how you could like mix these screens together without getting crazy morays, you know? Right. So there's like two techniques he taught me that I used probably all through the 70s wow. to do really sophisticated uh, color separations. Yeah. And I say everybody, everybody I met probably taught me something and in most cases I used it I mean uh, like Robert Williams like I was I was way into like uh, rapidograph pens like where my rapidograph pen so then I went I did a comic jam with him and I see him with his brush and he's like doing the shit with the brush and I'm like dude where's that brush you know how, how do you do that and he's like sounds like a you know Thayer Chandler you know double lots like all this so I immediately went to the art store and bought a Thayer Chandler double lot you know loaded it up, I couldn't do anything with it. But I just like tried over and over and over again to get that sophisticated line that I saw. Mm -hmm. And I did it. Finally I mean, then I end up, huh? Finally got it. Yeah, and so you see in the Taz posters, all of it is all done with the, the brush. Yeah, man. Eddie, who's been mentors for you and what, what's somebody taught you? Um, I don't know. I think Danny Boy was probably a big influence in my life. Um, he was a genius at, you know, connecting people and the dots and mm. seeing the future. And I kind of got with him, and that's kind of where I kind of think I took off the most, you know, kind of got into marketing through him. And then, uh, I don't know, Jim's an influence on me, too. Like, watching him work is, is, is amazing, and kind of how he breaks things down. How'd you guys meet? Uh, I think Ben Yard took me to Atomic Pop for a job, like a street team job, or James Lopez actually took me over there, I think, to do a street team job, and he was a creative director at the time. Mm. Nice. Yeah. It was a funny place because they brought all these young guys in, you know, like him and, and uh, what's his name from uh, Seventh Letter? Casey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like Casey actually did like a piece of uh, graffiti for me. Way oh, back right? in the day, a little yeah. Taz yeah. piece. He still has it, right? Yeah. Or you have it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember the Atomic Pop days. We I came close to doing a deal with Al. Yeah. I don't even remember what it was for who? with Raymond. For who? It might have been, it might have been Herb Music we were trying to. Lunch at the, the time. Yeah. I was at Dan across the street. Yeah, actually. yeah. And then you brought Caddy us in Corner. at Dan. Yeah. I think What'd we, we went. A, I think uh, we didn't do anything because they went out of business. But like we got close. Day. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, we're like having a meeting with them. They're going to send us an offer. And then we get a call probably from Eddie that like fire sale on their furniture. <laughs> let's, let's <run laughs> By the way, there. Gary Gersh is announcing tomorrow that we're closing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. Crazy times. But, you know, I think it's it's interesting. I'm curious to know if for you, you know, you go from creating these, you know, iconic pieces of art that are going to live forever on album covers or in logos or on posters um, to the digital era where everything is 
very functional. It's also very fleeting. Mm-hmm. And so how does that change your approach? Uh, well, that fire I told you about had something to do with it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> that, I mean, that, that probably pushed me into that approach a little bit more. I would have probably gone a lot slower since my natural thing is not to play with computers. But I was fascinated about what computers do. Yeah. Although the fact that, that it is so fleeting uh, and ephemeral, that bothers me. But it yeah. kind of bothers me in the back of my mind. There's not anything I can do about it exactly. I'm yeah. not sure. I mean, you think about like all the par- you know, photos that your parents have like from you know, the 30s and 40s and 50s. And even though they're, they're crappy little photos, they are little photos that you yeah. can still hold and are sitting in a shoebox right. somewhere in the closet. Yeah. I mean, like so many families now just take all that stuff and put it on whatever, you yeah. know. And it's not going to be really anywhere. That it's, it's going to be on something, some drive that you can't even hook up to anything, right? Right. Yeah. So or you that, can't find. Right. You know. Well, I just find that you know, now you know everything's in the cloud, but there's so many photos. Like you know, I have like a hundred thousand photos sitting on a drive on a right. cloud somewhere that I can find them. I can I can never Get, have time to look through, through them. Right. Yeah. You know, it's not like you sit the old days on the couch and flip through a photo album and reminisce. Like you, you sort of lose that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I'm sure I, I would imagine a lot of your contemporaries um, couldn't make that transition to digital. Right. Or that it was really hard for them, right? Because it, it is a it's a different thought process. It's probably a different motivation. Um, so was that like a was that a struggle for you or, or like, I mean, as you said, there's a fire that sort of wiped away a lot of the physical evidence. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it was a struggle. I mean, I haven't had a hard time ever. Like you know, for me, the future is always better than the past, just because it's the future. So, I don't have a hard time like Jeez. really accepting the future uh, yeah. I, under any circumstances, even if it's not like I don't really look back at the past and say, "Wow, it's like you know, really pretty cool." When I was living on the beach in Hawaii, I wish I could live like that for eternity. Did I mean, you, I, I really you, couldn't. I could have if I wanted to, but I didn't want to. So, did you learn that somewhere, or has that just been with you from birth? What What I just to, said? Yeah, to be more excited about the future than the past. I just always have been. I'm not sure exactly why. It's been it's been easy for me. So it's like people say, like you know, how how can you change so easily? It's like it's easy because you know it's like like new music. You know, even though like I can, I listen I'll listen to music and I say, wow, you know, I'm completely familiar with that music. I can still like appreciate like the you know the fact that the guy was born like in you know 1989 or something like that is making the music. So yeah. like he's listening to music that was like you know like you know, old, mm-hmm. a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So it's not really, you got to like listen to things in new ears and see it with new eyes or else you can't really possibly grow. I mean, and growth in terms of like age is not easy for people to do. I mean, I think the natural yeah. thing is for people to like stop growing. They just get like kind of crabby and Absolutely. it's like, yeah, well, everybody's listening to this music and that kind of sucks, you know, and it's like now they're putting everything on. And plus these things here, like what the hell are these? What? Right. You know? So Sounds it's like, like me. Huh? Sounds like me. Well, there's a lot of evidence, or some evidence, that like people, your music taste freezes at 26. Yeah. For most, for the average really? person, yeah. And uh, and you're like, you know, and I think you're like just getting going. You kind of learn new stuff, but but you're locked into the, like this is my music, right? Of whatever that is. That's why there's classic rock. That's why there's now classic hip hop stations. Mm-hmm. Right? And there'll be, you know, there's the 80s classic format, right? And you know that all has to adapt because each new generation. Stuck on. in the past, yeah. right? I think it's really tempting, right? Because you, you know, you got other stuff to think about. 
Well, for me to rehash the past wouldn't wouldn't really be you know wouldn't do me any good. I mean, yeah. I got like a little box in the back of my head where I keep the junk that I need. But I mean, your head's going to be full of just crap. I mean, yeah. and you're going to fill it with new crap like all the time. So you really got to decide like what kind of crap you want in your head. You know, yeah. for me, I like filter the crap and just put in the stuff that I need. So the future is 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 a fortunate place to be just because there's like fresh stuff coming in. And in order to like operate, I really have to like sort of live. Like I hadn't done all the other stuff before. I can't so really nostalgia. like drag. Oh, no yeah. nostalgia. For yeah, you. I can't drag the nostalgia with me. Otherwise, I mean, I can go bathe in it anytime I want to. At some point, I'll, I'm going to get really old and like sit somewhere and just like think like, dude, you used to be someone. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be bumping somebody like, hey, look me up online, man. That's like the, that's the crazy shit I did. Yeah, I was yeah, like Coachella, 60 years man. ago. But, uh, yeah. hey. so, I mean, so that the thing is, you know, you sort of get that for free. At some point, you, you can't fight against the tide any longer. Yeah. Right. But as yeah. long as you can, you really should. Yeah. I think. And what about, um, so, you know, you had, you had these goals, right? Like to be, you know, to make an impact as an artist, to have your stuff seen, you know, and you, you've accomplished those, Mm -hmm. as you said, really early on and, and so many since then. So are there new goals? Like what propels you to, to keep, keep growing? I think it's like, uh, you know, I guess say for instance, if you're an author or something like that, uh, and you haven't like written a book that you, the the book you really wanted to write or something like that, or you like you spent all your life like writing ad copy and things like that. So, I've got um, it's like I really haven't done exactly what I want to do, even though I've done a lot of stuff. Yeah. There's like, you know, some of the things I've done with Eddie, even some of the album covers. I mean, not album covers, but the uh, the posters and things like that, have been exciting just because you know it's like it's like a fresh approach. Yeah. So can you talk about the stuff you guys are doing together? Yeah. Go ahead. Start. Well, I mean, we're doing a lot. I'm trying to do the best I can to bring him some cool commercial work. Okay. I mean, that's kind of how it started. He's like, hey, let's find some cool stuff to do. It's not yeah. about the money. It's more about the cool stuff. Um, but right now we're working on a show with Risky, a okay. artist. They're going to collaborate. What's the name of the show? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> we just named it yesterday, or yeah. he named it yesterday. We'll, we'll, we'll so. post it. Yeah, so we we're it. doing a show with Risky. They're going to collaborate on some cool stuff at Buckshot Gallery. And is that you guys are creating new work to show together, or is it you're showing? Yeah, they're going to do some some new stuff, some uh-huh. new originals, and then they're going to also show some of their older stuff as well, which nice. I think is cool because if you think about it, he's such a giant. Kelly's such a giant. Yeah. If they, you know, come together and start hitting heads, it could be pretty pretty. So magical. something like that is exciting for me. Yeah. Yeah, because then then you can use you know what you've done, and and work with someone like him and create something completely new. Yeah, and then we also resurrected the pop the pop icons. Yes. From when was that eighties, right? Yeah. yeah. What's that, that stuff I did with Richard Guardo? Yeah, he has a whole show of pop icons. Uh, who is it? Uh, Frank Sinatra, Elvis. No, these are like por- portraits. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But like total '80s, sure. cool, big, fun stuff. We All resurrected and nice. have a show in Dallas now. We did oh, a show cool. in Palm Springs during Modernism Week, so that was fun, right? To see yeah, that. Yeah, but that was just again. a bunch of stuff that was like sitting in a closet, and he discovered it when I was. He was up looking at some posters. Yeah. He just saw like this Marilyn Monroe, and he goes, "What the hell is that?" You know? Jimi Hendrix, Billy Idol, right. Sylvester Stallone. Yeah, did a lot of stuff. Apollonia, or who was? Uh, what's the girl's name? Oh, the singer, wow. she was a Laker girl or something. Right, 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 right. Paul Abdul. Paul Abdul was a Laker girl. Yeah, that's who it was, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was like a four-year period of time where I did all this stuff with Richard. And yeah. we, we had like a, we had a hookup with Playboy magazine where they were they were having us do uh, illustrations. We did some album covers. We did, uh, you know, we did things for Madonna and different people for special events. And mm-hmm. plus we had galleries that were like showing the work. So for like a short period of time, I worked with Richard downtown and we just cranked out these personality pieces. It was like a, a chunk of the 80s. 
and it changed me completely. And yeah. I, I don't know where it and sent it, him. And it's cool. It's cool work too. Like it's yeah. now. Like it, mm -hmm. it could work now. That's what. Yeah, we put a lot of work it. into it. It's kind nice. of timeless. Yeah. Well, you talk about you know this era when magazines were so influential, and I think you know that's certainly over. Um, yeah. Uh, what do you look to now for for inspiration or for you know to to kind of inform your work? I mean, right now, I guess what I like is the fact that almost um, from a uh, from a, the aspect of like what is referential, almost anything goes. It's, it's really not like a you know I I I went through you know the period of time like starting in you know probably like my my brain career like started in the early '60s or right. mid '60s started rolling, but like everything moved along at that time is like like a, a chunk of pop culture that would like have a beginning, middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. And then the end would like fade out and everything from that particular period would be old and like uncool and all the new stuff would be new, you know, new and cool. Right. And then you just went from era to era to era. And finally it's like, that has like faded away and become like amorphous in a way that like everything almost exists simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'm fascinated now because I can almost choose anything from any period and utilize it and it kind of fits. Right. I mean, the mind, the mind of the of the consumer, and the visual mind of like of like, uh, you know, the young people that are looking at things, either movies or listening to pop music, is almost like more wide open than it ever has been. Like maybe less judgmental, mm -hmm. and like people could say like, well, because they like see so much stuff, they don't know what they're looking at. Maybe, but at the same time, they're actually looking at more stuff and they're absorbing more stuff. So you can right. you can bring something from almost any place. You can say almost anything you want to say. And people seem to be kind of open to the idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I'd say that there's more fresh ideas. I mean, there's really more music now than there ever has been in some ways. I mean, Absolutely. and like everything is good. I mean, a lot of stuff is good. But I mean, not that like, you know, the Foo Fighters are like the biggest band in the world, but still they're making, you know, still making good music. Right. Beyonce is doing what she's doing. I mean, you got a lot of people doing what they're doing. Yeah. And I would say that I get excited by the fact that it's, it's uh, sort of a, we live in a democracy of imagery. At the moment, well, we do, and I, and I think that has interesting implications for for your business, right? Because, you know, uh, it used to be necessary to have somebody like you to create the album artwork, the poster, whatever. Now, you know, every kid has uh, you know shop. a design studio, Home, yeah, right, in their pocket, and there's you know Canva, and there's all these free tools or w whatever, and it's you know I would say it's easy to make stuff that's good enough. Right. And um, so, you know, my question is, how does that change the game for you? How do you stay, I don't know if competitive is the right word, but how do you sort of differentiate yourself in that environment? Well, I mean, the lucky thing for me now is I've got like this giant body of work behind me. So I'm not yeah. like having to like start from scratch and like compete head to head with all these people. Right. Right. So when they look at it, they see all this other stuff. So I become like the, the sum total of everything I've done up to this point yeah. rather than just me. Yeah. So that makes one part of it easier. I mean, I look at someone like Grimes and I get fascinated because she seems like, like a shut-in who does interesting artwork, makes really interesting music, has like created her own computer out of her bedroom mm -hmm. and like done really, really well with it. And I've actually paid music uh, money for her, her albums and listened to yeah. them. So something like that like inspires me. Like it, it doesn't help my career at all, but at the same time it inspires me to think that like that there's people like that now everywhere yeah, doing yeah, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Multi-level creative. Right. Yeah. So there's there's always a, a market for someone who has a, a unique vision, I think. 
no matter what. Right. You know, be it in music, be it in writing, uh, or be it in art. So, do you, I don't know how much you talk to to young artists coming up trying to find their way. I'm sure you do. Um, and and obviously that journey is very different they're facing than what you faced right in in decades past right so what do you um what either one of you what, you know what do you tell artists that are you know young guys today trying to trying to make their way in in a career making art it's a big start? question i mean for me it's mostly like these street art graffiti kids that mm -hmm. are trying to figure out how to break out yeah and i suggest them to not even try at this point because i think it's kind of I mean, the whole the whole thought process behind it's different. Now it's like I'm doing this to get famous so I can sell my work instead right. of I'm doing this from a passionate place and, and I want to be better than the next guy. You know what I mean? So stay so, in the streets, just keep doing what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, I you know, kids come to me, how can I be the best graffiti artist? How can I get known? You know, and it's like with what these kids are doing nowadays, you can't beat the, the Zesses and the Sabres and the Revokes. Like no graffiti artist is ever going to come up with anything as cool as the stuff that they've done. So I just tell them, try something else <laughs> you know and and okay and it's it's unfortunate you know but even you if you try you mean try a different career or do you mean, I mean like yeah for me i'm getting a lot of kids that are trying to get into that lane when yeah. the lane is already closing sure you know sure. i don't deal with a lot of like graphic Who, designers who's that, the last um artist you've seen come up that has opened up a lane for themselves i mean there's a lot but that I like, I would say Retina. Okay. You know, I like what Retina's done. Mm -hmm. I think he's gonna. But he's not know. a young guy. Well, fair, I mean, not to call him out, but he's fairly so considering the, you know, his body of sure. work, right? Yeah. Like, this is his first kind of run with what he's doing now. Okay. I'm sure he's gonna have a couple other ones if he, yeah, sticks around. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is his style now. It's gonna morph into this, and then it's gonna be that. But and I think of I think of you know Shepard in a way. Shepard too created a new style of art right or or he um well, he created a lane for that art he wasn't the first guy doing it not at but all. but he was but he was the first guy to take that and and make it into a business yeah right? for sure and a very so good business too. um and so then people have followed him so now there's a bunch of wannabe shepherds right uh because he was able to have that success so i'm curious like he, he's the last guy i think of to kind of open a lane in that sense in the way that the graffiti guys did or in, in the way that you and your contemporaries did, right, in terms of creating something that, um, from a business perspective, wasn't really there before. Yeah, I can't think of anybody besides, like, Redner or Shepard. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about Dabs and Mila, they have that cartoony style, but yeah. a lot of people do that. They're probably sure. at the forefront of that right now yeah. in popularity. Yeah. Um, so back to my question about music, like, can you do that in art? Can you, can you blow the doors oh, you can. open again? I mean, look at look at Shepard. Shepard, the, the thing that makes Shepard dangerous, or dangerous in terms of like, you know, dangerous. say if you say, if art is like a, you know, like a weaponized concept, the, the idea that that an artist is a, you know, a warrior of some kind or another, as opposed to just like somebody who just draws pictures. Like you're talking about like somebody that's going to go out and thrust himself into like the the pop culture consciousness. Yeah. So at that point, then you become like a bit of a warrior. You grab your sword or your pen or whatever it is like that, and you head out and do battle with all the other gladiators that are like doing battle. Like Shepard came into the thing, and at first he only, all he had was that dumb little sticker, right? Mm -hmm. But the thing about Shepard is the guy has a philosophy, like a really deep-seated philosophy, and believes like ex not only in what he does, but he knows how to like be lucid about that, yeah. how to write things about it, how to like build like an entire empire of words yeah. and concepts around like everything he does. So he didn't have to do very much in the beginning. 
And the fact is, he hasn't really changed his style. I mean, you talk about sticking to the style. He's like done like a bazillion variations on one single style, right. yeah. and like done it kind and of brilliantly. People are still loving yeah. it, huh? and people are still yeah. loving yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So when you when you got that, it, it would be idiotic for him to to try to break out of it because it is you know it is what it is. I mean, he has kind of evolved though. He's got textures and, and he does the collage stuff in the right. back, so it's not so two dimensional or one dimensional. You know, so he is kind of growing in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think about that a little bit. Like, and you know, there's, I follow Shepard you know pretty closely, um, but. You know, I think about it struck me because I, I have seen a little bit of evolution. I think in some ways it's it's still very much the same thing, but it's definitely evolved. Um, but, you know, you think about him relative to like a Picasso who goes who has these periods. Right. And where everyone hates the new thing and then they come to love it and then they right. you know, and he moves on and reinvent yeah. and, and all that stuff. And, it, you know, and it, that kind of makes me wonder, like. Does that happen for a Shepherd or for a Futura or for a Hayes, right? Can these guys build these multi-decade careers where they're sort of constantly reinventing their style? And I think, you know, again, you've done that um, in, in many ways. But as you said, you're, you're a commercial artist, right? And so you're responding to the client, right? right? Or to the, the piece of work that you're being given to... Yeah, but the up. stuff he's doing now for himself is definitely different than the stuff he was doing ten years ago. It's like sure. it's, it's it's more psychedelic. He's getting real psychedelic with the with the patterns and the layers and the stuff that he's doing. Like I'm always trying to get him simple it simple down a little bit because we can't we can't really see what you see. You know, we're not ready for that yet. So he's definitely different as well than you know ten years ago. Yeah. So what you were saying is like where would I develop from here? And probably like into fine art. You know, like actually doing something that I felt like doing as opposed to doing something on yeah. command. Yeah. Is that harder? I, I think so, yeah. Because, I mean, as an artist, I could sit down and do almost anything I want to do. But, like, exactly what do I want to do? Yeah. I mean, so for, for a lot of, you know, for a lot of decades, I haven't really, you know, doodle. do what you want to do. No. I mean, when I talk on the phone, I doodle. So I've got, like, books of, like, weird little doodles and things like that. So you could Sell say, those. that's, like, sort of my natural style, right? Yeah. And they're, like, little monsters and, you know, cartoony things and strange cities and that sort of thing. Sure. But, uh, yeah, I think I think that the thing most impressive about Shepard, though, is the fact that he's he's uh, he knows exactly what he wants to do and he's able to talk about it yeah. and, uh, and do it. Yep. I mean, for me, I think the biggest thing is the buildings. Like, now it's buildings. It's not walls. Right. You know, like yeah. Retina did the American Apparel Building, and that's a monster. And Shepard's mm -hmm. doing five, six, eight stories, you know, murals. I think that, to me, is one of the most exciting progressions of the art form, whether it be street art or graffiti or graphic design. It's like to drive down the street and see these murals, you know, is, to me is pretty... And pretty, there's not such a big impressive. battle about what's fine art and what's commercial art anymore right. either. I mean, yeah. there's definitely... I mean, in the 60s, there was, like, people getting, like, just, you know, knock down, drag out battles about, sure. you know, the fact of, like, you know... That's commercial art, and that's fine art. Is Shepard fine art or commercial art, or both? I mean, Shepard comes from a commercial art background, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, as a straight commercial designer, most of his stuff is, like, for something, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, yeah. Lo he loves to decorate T-shirts or, like, any kind of surface. Yeah. But it, he, he, de he, like, fall. you know, he walks between art and commerce, for sure. And he'd be, like, probably the best fusion artist there is in terms yeah. of, like, people accepting him as a straight artist. And even accepting his commercial work as art, right? Yeah, absolutely. So he's he's certainly done a lot to like redefine that that particular area. Yeah, I mean, he brought the print game back in a big way. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. It kind of slowed down, and then now everyone's doing prints, and now all the ba all the bands are t taking prints on tour, which we're lucky to do some cool stuff lately. 
Um, yeah, the yeah. revival of like uh, of rock posters too is kind of interesting. You know, when you think like it kind of faded away. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the early '90s, it, it it didn't even exist, and suddenly it existed. You know, and it was everywhere. What I think is fascinating is Shepard will release them, and they'll be forty dollars, and then two days later they're four hundred dollars. Of course, it's like it's the magic, paper of, to magic make of paper. eBay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You buy paper to make paper. It's kind of it's kind of crazy to think about that. Absolutely. Well, I know we're almost out of time, and I, I know you, uh, you guys have busy schedules to That's get right. to. But um, I have a couple to get into. couple last questions. Um, what are the biggest sacrifices you've made in your career? Hmm. Probably not being able to enjoy myself as much as I'd like to. I mean, in order to do artwork, you have to like spend a lot of time by yourself just drawing. And I'm, I, my body naturally wants to be outside surfing or, or doing something else. And like I've spent, I mean, I, I've had to force myself and trick myself and, and basically connive myself into like sitting at that freaking desk for like <laughs> longer. I mean, it was certainly worse like in the 70s when I had like, you know, I was like learning as I went. Yeah. So I was like pushing myself all the time. I mean, now I have my techniques down so I can work a lot faster. But in those days I had like, you know, I'd have like six or seven jobs at a time. Mm-hmm. And these were all jobs that I had to paint mm-hmm. or draw or like logos or, you know, things like that. Like I did a logo for Don Kirshner's rock concert. He just like calls out of the blue. Somebody says, like, this guy, Don Kirshner, I'd never heard of him. Have you seen, heard? No. Seen? Oh, it was like a big rock concert thing in the really? 70s. Yeah. You can he was at, a promoter. Huh? He was a promoter. He was a promoter, yeah. Okay. He called me from New York. Who played? Huh? Who was playing? Everybody was on it. Okay. On the show? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look it up on YouTube. Yeah, Don yeah. Kirshner's Rock Concert. You'll see everybody on it. But I'd never heard of this guy, and I had, like, already six other jobs, and so he called up, and he wanted a logo. And it was, that was the way it was for almost a decade. I mean, at the end of the decade... My success had almost like completely crushed me. I mean, I, I, I didn't hardly go out much. I mean, I had to, you know, I was always at the desk. I mean, I missed a lot of days surfing. Just, you know, I couldn't tell whether it was day or night. I'd have to close the blinds, you know, just because I didn't want to see the daylight anymore. Yeah. So I would say like, like having to like shut off and not do things because I had to work. Work is, I've had to work a lot harder than I thought I would. <laughs> In the beginning, it was kind of embarrassing. I almost tried to hide it because I thought that it was kind of weird. Right. You know, I could do what I wanted to do, but it took a lot longer than I thought it would. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, and I think, like, now we like to say how busy we are. <laughs> like, that's the thing, right? Like, right. Every, you go, how are you doing? Oh, man, I'm slammed, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's just the thing you say, you know. But but I think, you know, I I think back then you kind of wanted, it was more like, I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm not working that hard. Like, I'm, you, right. know, you kind of have to hide it. On the other hand, like working at home uh, or in my studio, I was able to watch my kids grow up. So I'm probably yeah. better than most dads in terms of like having been around for all their games and things like house. that. Yeah, huh? didn't have to leave the house. Right. So have you found ways to to find more of that balance now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I live in Malibu, right. so I can I can throw my board in the car and go surfing, you know, instead of eating lunch. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I still work really hard, but I I don't have to do all nighters. I mean, in the '70s, I did I did all nighters like three and f- four times a week. Yeah. I mean, there was, my sleep patterns were like, like a vampire. Sure, it was <laughs> completely inside out. Yeah. And also, you didn't have, you couldn't send everything. So, right. Depending on where you lived, I mean, I had to actually go to meetings. So yeah. I had to like go to record companies and like, having after having not slept all night and drop, drop something on the desk, you know. And then the guy look at it and he goes like, "Oh, that's great." He said, "But can you make the sky a little <laughs> bit, you know?" And I'd be like, yeah, "Okay." And that meant that I had to actually go back and repaint the sky. Yeah, another all nighter. Yeah. yeah. And on those things, it wasn't that easy because I mean, oftentimes I'd I'd have to like 
basically cut out the sky and remove it from the illustration board, paint it on another thing, and then cut it out and then put it in place and then retouch it where it was. Down, yeah. do the, I mean, that was the fastest way to do it because yeah. I worked, because I, you know, they would have me do like a movie poster in like a weekend. Uh -huh. I mean, they would call me on Thursday and they want something on their desk on Monday. Yeah. And that's like pretty fast to paint a movie poster. So I painted with um, like dyes, you know, airbrush and dyes and things like that and pencils. So I could work really, really fast, except that it's like merciless. I mean, if you make a mistake, it's done. Yeah. If you have to redo something, I mean, you basically got to cut it out because you can't, you can't get rid of the dye. Basically, the dye dyes itself right into the board. So it, it creates beautiful colors, but like any mistake is, you know, say the airbrush spurts, mm -hmm. mother just tear it up and throw it away. Yeah. And in retouch jobs, I would do like big retouch jobs, and, and that was the same kind of a thing. I'd have to buy like a, a $450 print and then, you know, retouch with one of these little tiny airbrushes to, you know, for an album cover. And it was crazy. It was crazy, yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's, if you think about how easy this stuff is now it, by comparison, it's unbelievable. I mean, I felt like my hand was like like as steady as like a, like a brain surgeon. Yeah. I mean, because I'm sure. you know holding that thing. I mean, I could just like. You yeah. Know. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, we don't we don't have such steady hands. I'm good. Yeah. It's not bad. But I can't draw. So it was a it was a it was a give and take, but definitely yeah. the that got really old. Yeah. So I was glad to move away from that a little bit. Yeah. I, mean, I couldn't have if I'd have kept that up, I'd, yeah, I'd have been dead for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. Last couple questions. For you, favorite DJ? Mm. Mm. Uh, damn, I would say Adam, AM, you know? Yep. I think what he did was magnificent. Then I'd say probably, yeah, I'd go with AM. Okay. You? Well, uh, I mean, I always say Jeff. Okay. It's all Jazzy Jeff yeah, for man. me is. But you know that's it's like there's a long list of guys that are on that, hugely influential yeah, on that one spot. And he's yeah. the one that that stands out. And so I know you're a rock guy. Uh, if you're if you got a DJ for us, but uh, otherwise, your favorite live show. I mean, Grandmaster Flash is he kind of the DJ? Sure, of course. Yeah. can be. I would say I would say Grandmaster Flash was like a real life changer for me. I went to see a show when he first came to LA, and it was like it was like one of those kind of things where you like you've seen the future. Yes. I didn't even know what I was looking at. I walked in there and it was like a guy like standing up there with like, like somebody had taken like pieces of cardboard and stuff like that and painted crap all over behind him, yeah. which was like obviously urban, you know, right. urban graffiti. Right. But they brought it from New York and just put yeah. it behind him. So it was like right up on Sunset Boulevard. And then the guys like playing this crap on turntables, and I'm like, so where's the band? Right. Because yeah. I'd heard the music and I liked the music, but I thought you there was going to be like a soul band or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It was just this guy. Yeah. Anyway, so what year was that? 79, 78? Yeah, 79. Yeah. It was like he just brought New York to a yeah. club here, and, and, you know, and everybody was the same as me. We're just like, oh, uh, yeah. what's that? Well, that's another one of those nights, right? That <laughs> right. You're like, shit's different than it was yesterday, you know? Yeah, and that's why I, that's why I said AM for me, yeah. because AM brought show, the D, you know, the DJ show to another level. Mm -hmm. It wasn't about cutting and scratching and, you know, transforming anymore. It was about actually making, combining music and mashing up and, like, you know, definitely for hip-hop, DJ kind of took it to the next level, you know. Z-Trip yeah. as well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Z-Trip doesn't, was, they're different, you know. They're mm -hmm. the same but different, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for being here. I'm excited to see the show and the, and the stuff you guys are doing. And uh, come back anytime with something to promote. I know we're going to do more together as Rebel Radio and Gorilla One. That's right. So I appreciate you uh, making this happen. Mm -hmm. All right. Nice. Fun. Anything for sure.
Okay, okay, that was Taz. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Good stuff from that man. The first in our Artwork Rebels series in partnership with Gorilla One. Thank you, Eddie Donaldson, for making that happen. Look out for more Artwork Rebels talks here on Rebel Radio coming up. In the meantime, leave us a review at iTunes. Hit us on Twitter, Facebook, and come to the Rebel Radio site, rebelradio.net. And before I let you go, Rebel Radio is sponsored by Wix.com. Wix.com helps you build websites that look good. It's free and easy to use. There's customizable templates. You don't need design skills. You don't need coding. You just use their templates. You drop in your videos, your text, your images. Hook up your social media, and it's all done. It's easy and it's fast, and it's free. Go to Wix.com and build your website today, Wix.com. Wix.com.